If you are old enough to remember September 11, 2001, you know exactly where you were when you heard the news of the terrorist attacks that day. Joe Tarilla was driving to Midtown Manhattan. He only knew there was a fire at one of the Trade Center towers when he turned his car toward his old fire station that sat adjacent to the site. Soon, he found himself in the middle of one of the most significant events in the nation's history. I'm Andrew McRae with this edition of The Scenic Route. Why a firefighter? Was it something that you had always wanted to do, or uh, how did you uh, become a firefighter? Well, the truth of the matter is that I kind of figured and knew that I would be a career civil servant. And the truth of the matter is I worked in four other civil service agencies in New York City before I came on to the New York City Fire Department. And I think that uh, I realized if I was going to be a career civil servant, then why not serve in the premier agency of New York City, which is the New York City Fire Department? But I think what attracted me most to being a firefighter was that I really liked the idea of their work schedule. You worked one day and then you were off for three days. And I'm a carpenter by trade, which is really what I wanted to do more than anything in my life. And I says, wow, here's an opportunity. I can have two parallel careers, you know, because I came from a poor family, you know, and I wanted things in life. And this would have been an opportunity to do it. Yeah, yeah. I believed I was catching some of your speech from backstage, so I didn't catch it all of it. But were you first stationed then across from the Twin Towers? Where was your first uh, station? Yeah, my first station was Engine Company 10, okay. which was a brand-new firehouse uh, that opened in 1980 when I began my career. It was literally right across the street from the South Tower. As a matter of fact, my firehouse one time back in the early 1900s sat on the grounds of the World Trade Center Ground Zero site, and it was one of 168 buildings that were knocked down to capture that land. And the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, who paid to build the towers, uh, they agreed to build a brand new firehouse across the street because they had to knock the old one down to put up the towers. And when I began my career, uh, that's where I was arbitrarily placed. Of all 357 firehouses, New York City Fire Department placed me there as a new fireman, and I spent 16 years there until I was promoted to a lieutenant on September 5th, 1996. Okay. Now, I believe you said at the time that you were there, was that when the first bombing had taken place at the, the Twin Towers and the, and the underground garages? Yes, I remember the day like yesterday. It was February 26, 1993. It was a very cold, wet, snowy day. Uh, we had just come back from the supermarket. It was 18 minutes after noon, and we had picked up our lunch, and we were backing the fire engine into the firehouse with our, you know, with our groceries, and the bomb went off, and the lights in the towers were flickering and we kind of looked at each other said what the heck was that something just happened and we probably figured there was an electrical short and we immediately pulled right back out of the firehouse we didn't even wait for an alarm to come in we just went there to investigate it and a huge black plume of smoke was coming out from underneath the hotel which was positioned between the two towers and we assumed that may have maybe a gas line ruptured or electrical short but uh by the evening we realized that in fact it had been bombed yeah yeah as we fast forward then, you said you had been promoted. Where had you been promoted to then from that station? Well, I got promoted in September of 1996, and I ended up working in Brooklyn, New York, where I was born, in a very busy area that has a lot of uh, fires, uh, and uh, it was a different uh, facet of my career. I was 
used to fighting fires in high-rise buildings, and now I was, you know, responding to different types of emergencies in smaller type of residential buildings. Okay, okay. You mentioned when September 11th of 2001 rolled around, you were headed to a press conference, is that right? And I think that press conference relays into some stuff you still do today. Well, yeah, that's exactly because uh, shortly after getting promoted to lieutenant uh, on New Year's Eve of 1996 going into 1997, it was a stroke past midnight, an alarm came into the firehouse where I was working in Brooklyn, and there was a report of a woman trapped in the rear of a building. And in that rescue attempt, my left thumb was almost completely cut off of my hand, and they rushed me to the hospital, you know, into surgery, and uh, it was a near-career-ending injury, and I was devastated because I'd just become a promote. I just got promoted to lieutenant. And uh, they told me that in my convalescing period, I have to take a desk job working in headquarters. And, of course, I was a little taken back because I didn't have any office skills. You know, I'm a carpenter, plumber, electrician by trade. But I knew I'd have to make the best of this uh, recuperation period. And they asked me to work in the Office of Fire Safety Education. I didn't even know we had an Office of Fire Safety Education. And ironically, eight months into the assignment, I was named the director of the whole program. And I think, you know, uh, moral is, as I shared with the kids, life has a lot of funny twists and turns, and sometimes life leads you to a place where you need to be. And as the new director of this education program, uh, I was adamant that, you know, if we were going to be serious about educating the public and trying to reduce fires and fatalities, we, in fact, should have a learning center where kids can go on a class trip. And everybody loved the idea. They asked me to take on the project, and I co-created the first state-of-the-art fire safety learning center called the Fire Zone. I worked on the project for two years, opened in October 2000, and a month later we got nominated for the Theater Award at the Emmys, and we won this prestigious award. And from there, I was working on promoting this uh, learning center. I wanted people to get to know about it. And then about three months after the opening, uh, I got a call from a company called Fisher-Price Toys out of the blue. You know, one morning, I'm having a cup of coffee and a bagel in my office and headquarters, and I figured they had the wrong number. They said, no, we want to speak to Lieutenant Trevillo. I said, well, that's me. You know, how can I help you? You know, subconsciously, I'm thinking they, they opened up a new office in Manhattan. They want me to do fire drills. They said, no, no, no. We want to run something by you that you might be interested in. I said, oh, okay, what is it? They said, are you familiar with our little action figures we call rescue heroes that kids love? I said, no, not really. They said, well, let us explain it to you. We have these whole line of action figures called rescue heroes, a police officer we call Jake Justice, an ambulance attendant called Perry Medic, a lifeguard called Wendy Waters, a mountain climber called Cliff Hanger, a construction worker called Jack Hammer, and they wanted a New York City firefighter to be in addition to their rescue heroes. They were going to call him Billy Blazes, and if I agreed to help them design it, I'd get a dollar for everyone that was sold around the world. I mean, the money wouldn't go to me personally. It would go to my education program, and I would use those funds to buy smoke detectors and give them out free to people who didn't have them or couldn't afford them if they were willing to listen to me for an hour on how to prevent and survive a fire. So in January 2001, I sat down with the Fisher-Price executives, the artists, illustrators, and toy designers in my office and headquarters. And for a whole day, as I was talking about what a firefighter physically looks like wearing his bunker gear, which is his firefighting clothing, his air tank, his tools, and his equipment, the artists and the illustrators had their art pads on the easels, and they were sketching out this new rescue hero, a New York City firefighter, Billy Blazers. And at the end of the day, they had this figure drawn out. They took the artwork to the factory. 
and took about six months to go from artwork to the first mold and prototype, which was now July of 2001. And they called us up for a meeting. They brought down the mold, the prototype. We looked it over. We agreed to go into mass production. And they were very excited, as we were with this partnership, because it was going to be an income stream to support my program. And then at that point, they said, we want to have a big press conference in New York City. Where can we have a press conference? I says, well, uh, let's have the press conference. Let's introduce Billy Blazes at the Fire Zone. They said, what's the Fire Zone? I said, it's a new learning center I just designed. We won an Emmy Award. They says, oh, my God, where is it? I said, it's in Rockefeller Center. They says, oh, my God, this is going to be great. Okay, we know where we're going to have the press conference, but now when can we do it? Again, this meeting was in July 2001. And I said, well, let's do it in October. It's Fire Prevention Month. It's the longest-running health initiative in the world. It goes back to 1871 after they rebuilt Chicago, after that great fire where Mrs. O'Leary's cow supposedly kicked over the lantern. And this is why that's very apropos to our project, but it's too close to the Christmas and the holiday season. We need to get Billy Blazers on the market a little bit sooner. And so I'm brainstorming in the meeting, and I really can't think of another date that would really be appropriate and a natural tie to this uh, a partnership. And so I says, you you know, 911 is the emergency phone number in New York City. Why don't we have a 911 day? And this is, oh my God, what a great novel idea. We'll have a 911 day in New York City. It's the emergency phone number when you need help from a firefighter, a, a police officer, an ambulance uh, attendant. And this is, okay, great, great. So on September 11, 2001, at 9 o'clock in the morning, all the TV stations in New York City were waiting for me to introduce this new rescue hero, Billy Blazes, a New York City firefighter. And on my way to the press conference, at 8.46 a.m., American Airlines flight number 11 that had just departed Boston Logan Airport en route to Los Angeles, California, with 87 people on board, was hijacked, and it slammed into the 93rd and the 99th floor at 8.46 a.m. on my way to the press conference. I'm about an eighth of a mile away, and I'm looking up at the top of the North Tower, and my eyes can't believe what it's seeing, and I have to make a big decision. Do I continue to the press conference, or do I make my way to that old firehouse across the street where I began my career, knowing that they would need as much help as they can, especially from a firefighter who had a lot of knowledge and experience, you know, uh, with, with that complex. And that's the decision I made. And I was out, I was on the scene at 9 o'clock in the morning at my firehouse. I took off my Class A dress uniforms. I borrowed a set of firefighting clothing from another fireman who was off duty, Lieutenant Tommy McNamara. Again, it was 9 a.m., and I ran out of the firehouse going to the North Tower to find my old company and the firefighters who I was friends with. And as I was running past the South Tower, I heard a noise, and I looked up, and United Airlines Flight 175 came right over my head. I was the only one underneath that jet, and it slammed into the South Tower as I was underneath it. And at that point, I realized we were under a terrorist attack. Yeah, yeah. How long at that point had it been since you had been active, actively fighting fires? Because you'd been on the safety and prevention side for a while. Then? Well, yeah, I've been. I was on the safety and the prevention side since uh, February of 1997. Uh-huh. So I was on the safety side for like almost uh, a little more than four and a half years. So uh, you know that's what I was dedicated to building an effective education program, making it part of our total fire prevention program. It's a, it was a piece of the pie of fire prevention that we never really acknowledged or paid attention to, which is education. Everything was all about engineering and enforcement, 
but the third E, education, was something we never believed would be an effective component in our total fire prevention program, but we proved that it was something that we overlooked for so many years because now today, because of the education program that I had built, typically we'd have 375 375 deaths due to fire every year. Last year, we only had 54 people, and the, the mayor of New York City gave me a huge award for administrative excellence, and the control of New York City gave me an award for running the most efficient office in city government. Wow. You mentioned that day you were trying to catch up with your company. Did you catch up with them then? I never did. You know, I did make it to the North Tower. And just as I got to the North Tower, I ran into some friends and firefighters from all parts of New York City were now arriving upon the scene. And it just so happened that every fire engine that pulled up, I knew the firefighters from some, you know, part of my career. And uh, they were asking me, hey, what's going on? What's going on? They said, you know, uh, somebody said two planes hit the two towers. I said, no, that's exactly what happened. And I said, these buildings are going to collapse. They're like, what? I said, these buildings are going to collapse. You know, we're going to lose the water supply. And I had some of the firefighters with their fire engines go about seven blocks north and hook up to hydrants and bring hoses down so that we would have a water supply. They were hesitant. They, first of all, they didn't really have to listen to me because I didn't have any rank where I had the ability to uh, give them those orders. And they couldn't even understand why was I saying this. You know, everything was happening. And at that point, then people started jumping out of the towers one after another. And then I saw all these emergency vehicles were rushing to the scene, police cars, fire engines, and ambulances. And I got a flashback to the day of the bombing in 1993, one of the big issues we had in that evening where there were so many emergency vehicles haphazardly parked around the perimeter of that 16-acre site of the World Trade Center. We couldn't find the drivers to the vehicles at night, and now we couldn't get ambulances to hospitals, you know, with victims in them. Uh, So I knew that before I even did anything that I had to kind of get control of the perimeter of the complex to make sure that the main thoroughfares weren't blocked. And at that point, you know, uh, people uh, like ambulance attendants and firefighters and police officers, they weren't listening to what I was saying. And as I was turning back all the ambulances away, one ambulance decided to go up to the South Tower. I ran up there. I told them to get out of the tower, you know, because the building's going to collapse. This is who are you? We don't work for you. You got no authority. We're setting up a triage area. This is what we're supposed to do. And I'm saying to myself, you know, a lot of people are going to die today. We can't afford to lose the emergency ambulance crews. So I was very adamant and very forceful. And I, I made them get out of the tower and get in their ambulance and drive uh, five blocks away to a staging area where the other ambulances were. And I'm outside underneath the South Tower, and I'm aggravated because I don't want to have confrontations with people today. And then all of a sudden, I heard a loud rumble and a roar, and now the building's starting to come down. And I said to myself, you idiot, you're the one who knew this building was going to collapse, and you put yourself right underneath it. Uh, And, you know, subconsciously, I never thought the buildings would collapse that soon. I really thought we had five to six hours to get everybody out of the towers that we could. We couldn't even consider the people above the point of impact because we couldn't get to them, and they couldn't get down. And we needed to evacuate the surrounding buildings, you know. And I think, you know, when I, when I hear the stories that surround September 11th in New York City at the World Trade Center, people refer to it as the worst incident in recent memory on American soil. And I tell people, you know, that's only partially true. It was the two worst incidents in recent memory on American soil happening 130 feet apart from each other, separated by 17 minutes. We had two 110-story buildings hit by two separate jets at two separate times. And that's the enormity of the rescue that we were up against. And as much as we wanted to do, 
as as hard as we wanted to do it, you know, as quick as we wanted to do it. In less than an hour, the second tower, which was struck uh, at 9.03, it already began to lay down upon itself at 9.58, at 55 minutes late. The building was already down. And so, you know, in that 55 minutes, it seems now like 15 or 20 minutes, because that 55 minutes went very quickly, the building was already down. And at that point, it was obvious that the other building would collapse, and it did a half hour later. So, you know, in the 102 minutes from the time the first building was uh, attacked until the until that building collapsed at 102 minutes you know there was everything and anything uh that could possibly done we were doing you know to the best of our ability and you know we could have never been really prepared for an incident this huge and i don't know if you would ever been properly trained to handle something that was for all intents and purposes it was really out of our control you know as much as you wanted to do it was almost like there was not a lot you really could do what happened to you when you were standing under that tower then and it collapsed? Well, I started running, you know, and I'm saying to myself, I probably got about 10 seconds left to live. And I think my biggest fear was that my body would never be found or identified. And there was a footbridge that went over the main thoroughfare in front of the World Trade Center. And I was subconsciously thinking, hey, if I can make it underneath that footbridge, maybe they'll find my body. You know, I was afraid that I wouldn't even get a funeral. And as I started running, the building was coming down, uh, 110 stories hitting each floor below, like a fireplace bellows. And as I'm running, you know, I could feel the air pressure on the back of my neck, and the air caught the back of my helmet. My helmet just flew away. My helmet was flying faster and higher up in the air, and I'm watching it as I'm running. It was, it was like a scene out of The Wizard of Oz. And then at some point, the air pressure got so strong they estimate like 200 miles an hour it was like a tornado force that lifted me off of my feet i never did make it to the footbridge i ended up being blown face first into the street and then a piece of steel hit me in the back of the head opened up the whole back of my head i had a fractured skull huge slabs of concrete were just hitting my body snapping all my ribs my arm was broken my back was crushed i was bleeding internally and i was suffocating i'm buried under this building in the darkness I could see nothing but hear people screaming at the top of their lungs. And eventually the screams turned into cries, the cries into whimpers, the whimpers into silence. One by one they had all died and I'm I'm still alive. And, you know, rescuers had come and they were digging, they found me, they got me out. They they strapped me onto what's called a long spine board, a stiff piece of plastic, similar to a stretcher, you know, when you suspect somebody might have a fractured spine or a broken neck. And they were running with me, and they said they were going to put me on a boat. And I couldn't understand why was I being put on a boat across the uh, main thoroughfare on the shoreline of the Hudson River that separates Manhattan from New Jersey. Well, boats had come from New Jersey into Manhattan with the anticipation of getting people out of New York City, which was the only way of getting out at that point. Either you were running over bridges, but there were no cars, no taxi cabs, no buses, no trains, but there were boats. And they put me on the deck of the boat, they're holding my head closed, and I heard them saying that I was going to die if I didn't get to a hospital. And then there was another loud rumble and a roar, and the people on the boat started screaming, oh my God, here comes the other building. Now they all jumped off the boat into the river because they were hitting, they were being hit with like thousands of pieces of glass shards from the tower collapsing. And somehow, you know, 
obviously I was left behind, you know, laying on my back on the spine board, and I just bent my index finger. Luckily, hit the release belt of the restraining strap. My hand was free. I ripped the tape off of my neck because they thought I had a broken neck, and I just stuck my hand out and found uh, a doorway, and I jumped into the doorway not knowing it was the entrance uh, to the long, narrow, steep stairway into the engine room, and I ended up diving headfirst into the engine room, and now the tower is falling on top of the boat, and the boat is rocking up and down. It felt like the boat was going to go underwater, and my biggest fear ever since I was a kid that I would die by drowning, and now I'm buried in the engine room with a boat all alone for about another 45 minutes and as I was losing consciousness I heard people jumping back on the deck of the boat above and somebody said start the engines I heard them and somebody came down that long steep flight of stairs that I had jumped head first down and he stepped on my chest you know and I, I, I let out this loud scream and I must have scared the living daylights out of him and he had a flashlight he shined it and he screamed to the captain above on the deck he said there's a fireman down this guy's not going to make it the captain came down took one look says get this boat out of here and the boat was skipping across the river but i didn't know where we were going the boat ended up in on on the new jersey side paramedics were waiting there uh they came into the engine room they put me onto another spine board next thing i know i'm in an ambulance and i wake up i'm in an operating room but i don't know where i am i'm in another state in a trauma center and in the operating room i have a clear vision and memory doctors and nurses were surrounding me with scissors they were cutting all my clothes off of me and on the inside of our jacket we all write our name it's a tommy mcnamara he's the firefighter who i borrowed his coat from and so i was listed as tommy mcnamara and then that night they found my my vehicle crushed and everybody knew i was at the south tower so i was declared dead and for three days you know nobody could clear up this confusion nobody thought about going to other states and searching hospitals but three days later they realized in fact i was misidentified and called my family to say that they had found me where was tommy mcnamara he was at home with his wife on a cup of coffee and eventually i ran into him about six months later i said tommy i have to apologize i had your bunker gear he said what I said, Tommy, look, it's, it's all cut to pieces. I said, I'm really sorry. I'll pay to replace it. He put his arm around me, gave me a hug, says, brother, you've got to be kidding me. He says, he says, the heck with that bunker key. I just want you here. And he, <laughs> I'm interested. What, what told you that those were going to collapse when so many other firefighters and rescue people didn't seem to be aware of that well because you know uh when i graduated high school i decided to go to engineering school i just loved the construction industry and i didn't necessarily think that i would go into uh a career uh so to speak in in informal engineering i'm a carpenter by trade i just want to learn more about structures more than i ever knew so i studied structural engineering and two of my professors louis radioli who just happened to pass away last year in his late 80s, and George Borey, they were engineering professors, but they were also working for the concrete contractor on the Twin Towers. And because of their position as the concrete superintendents, they were able to take me and the engineering students on a class trip to study this new novel design of high-rise construction, the Twin Towers, the two biggest buildings in the world uh, when they were completed. And as engineering students, we were amazed that these buildings seemed to be so lightweight and flimsy that they didn't have the massive amount of steel that we thought they should have. But it was a new novel design and construction, radically different than a support system like the Empire State Building. But obviously the architectural and the engineering team, they obviously did their job. They knew what they were doing. The building stood for 30 years before they were attacked. But then I graduated engineering school, and the test came out for the New York City Fire Department. 
and all my friends filed. Matter of fact, 70,000 young guys filed for that exam, and they only hired 3,000 out of 70, and I was in the top 1,000. And I took the appointment because I wanted to get my friends mad and angry because they all failed. And it's not something I really intended on doing. I kind of liked the idea because of their work schedule. So I accepted an appointment, and when I graduated the fire academy, of all 357 firehouses in New York City that they could arbitrarily assign me to, they chose the firehouse across the street from the South Tower. So I'm back as a fireman protecting them and not an engineering student studying them. And for all those years, I just thought... I wasted my time in engineering school, but it all came back to me on September 11th. It was that background that let you know what, what would happen. You yeah. know, really, you know, yeah. the moral of the story is education's never wasted. Remember, you can hear all of our broadcasts, plus links to much more, online at AmericanCountryside.com. Thanks for listening to this edition.